the orange dot with the little orange smudge down there. This week, we don't have to talk about the election, do we? Yes, we do, actually. Brace yourself. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 223. We took a week off last week because people were talking about an event that happened and other voices were able to do it just a little bit better than us. Plus, it gave us time to digest exactly what this means for our little city of Edmonton, the orange dot that could. And that's what we're going to be talking about, at least at the start of this episode, but not before we get into the rapid fire segment. 12 provincial sheriffs will finish out the year partnering with the Edmonton Police Service to patrol central neighborhoods. The extension comes as their regular beat of kicking people out of the public space at the legislature grounds has been widely replaced by construction barriers, rendering their services unnecessary until the new water feature is complete and Danielle Smith wants to take a photo with the UCP caucus splashing around. Flair Airlines, the Edmonton-headquartered low-cost carrier, has taken the top spot among Canadian airlines for the average number of complaints per 100 flights, with 15.3. Said Flair CEO Stephen Jones, quote, If you all want to be big crybabies about everything, go ahead. I just added three more literal crying babies to your flight. What are you going to do? Pay regular airline costs? An EPL librarian, after taking an arrow to the knee in Final Jeopardy, took second place on his quiz show appearance. He said of his performance, quote, I had the bases loaded, but I struck out. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. Every week, we bring you the latest on municipal affairs in our city, including what city council is up to. If you like our show, please give us a rating in your podcast app of choice. Well, Mac, um, I believe something happened in Alberta, and I'd say it was a change, but in fact, it was not. Status quo won the province over, with some addendums, and we'll get into that. But I think the big takeaway is Danielle Smith is once again Premier of Alberta, and she has the majority of the seats with the majority of the popular vote at around 52% as well. And also remaining the same, Edmonton is an orange dot. Episode 34 of our podcast, actually, back in 2019, was titled The Orange Dot. Now, orange dot again for Edmonton. The NDP swept the Edmonton ridings and also actually picked up Sherwood Park. As you say, much is similar after this provincial election to what it was before. And the dot is a little bit more orangey because the one little blue streak down in uh, Casey Madu's riding is no longer Casey Madu's riding with Nathan Ipp, the former school trustee, taking that riding quite handily. Yeah. And, you know, Nathan, I mean, this is a compliment. He's to me one of those like career politicians, right? He's been a three-term uh, public school trustee, and he's clearly been uh, interested in political office and he's been working toward that. I think he's a great guy. I'm glad to see that he won the seat. I'm glad that Casey Madu is gone. I don't think any anybody who's listening to our show is going to feel particularly sad about that. But good for him to be uh, rewarded. It was also one of the, the ridings in Edmonton that had one of the highest turnouts, I believe. And not to knock on career politicians, I think one thing we have discovered in the past four years is that it is possible to be bad at being a politician. It is a skill is. that requires yeah. talent, and many do not have that talent. But let's start with how this election result affects Edmonton, which I think immediately is, well, not that much. It's basically the status quo for Edmonton, though Edmontonians who um, had banked on an NDP victory may be sorely disappointed, but Edmontonians who banked on a UCP victory may be uh, feeling quite elated. And on our Edmonton City Council, I'm thinking of two specifically, Sarah Hamilton and Tim Cartmel, who you'll recall uh, joined Daniel Smith's 
task force. Tim Cartmel had met with Daniel Smith before even Mayor Sohi had met with Daniel Smith. So those two politicians had ingratiated themselves quite closely with the new premier, who now has won a four-year mandate. I think you might say that, and I think you tweeted this, Troy, Hamilton and Cartmel are basically the UCP politicians now in Edmonton, given their close ties to uh, the provincial party and to Danielle Smith, because the cabinet won't have an Edmonton representative for the first time since December 1992. Uh, that was the last time that Edmonton was shut out of the provincial cabinet, because the only two PCMLAs at the time who were elected in Edmonton were not appointed because they chose to run against Ralph Klein for the leadership. And so obviously they weren't rewarded with a, a cabinet position. And that, you know, as you said, kind of makes Cartmel and, and Hamilton relatively powerful, I think. And I looked at the numbers because I was just interested in the vote stats on this, because we've talked before on the show, you know, when we were covered the municipal election about how much support Tim Cartmel in particular received. And so just a reminder from our last municipal election, Tim Cartmel got more than 16,000 votes. That was the most of any candidate aside from three of the mayoral candidates. Andrew Knack was next uh, among councillors, and then Sarah Hamilton actually, with a little over 10,000 votes. So they both had wide support in that election. And looking at the numbers for this provincial election, only one UCP candidate in the Edmonton ridings received more than 10,000 votes. And that was Casey Madhu, actually, probably helped a little bit by turnout. And even among the NDP candidates, Marlon Schmidt in Edmonton Gold Bar had the most at 15,500 votes. So those two councillors have received maybe as much support as several of the provincial politicians, even though there were far more votes cast in Edmonton, 370,000 votes in the Edmonton ridings for this provincial election compared to just 235,000 in the municipal election. Of course, the caveat with those numbers is provincial ridings are slightly smaller in terms of population than uh, municipal ridings. But the point absolutely still stands. Sarah Hamilton and Tim Cartmel were some of the most broadly supported councillors in the municipal election. And that is what I think gives them the political cover, the wherewithal to do those big moves to support uh, Danielle Smith's task force, uh, where a more tenuously uh, elected politician might not have been able to. So, I mean, if they were betting on a horse, they picked the right one and they've really done very well for themselves in this election. Uh, this, of course, leaves Mayor Sohi in an awkward position because he's supposed to be the one who liaises with the province. He's supposed to be the voice of Edmonton City Council when they speak to other orders of government. And he may find himself not quite in that seat. But he's optimistic, as Amarjeet Sohi characteristically is. And he says that he sees the election win as a chance to, quote, reset the relationship with the province. I noticed in his uh, language about this, he talked about city council because, of course, Daniel Smith, you've probably heard, floated this crazy idea of the council of the defeated, right? So because there's no <laughs> successful Edmonton candidates from her party, maybe we can use all the failed candidates. And uh, Rachel Notley, the NDP leader, had the best quip in response to this. We have council of elected, 20 NDP members of uh, the, the legislature that you could consult. But the mayor also said, well, there's city council who's been elected by Edmontonians and you could consult with them. And he didn't talk about himself or anything like that. He talked about city council more broadly, which, you know, I suppose makes sense when you're trying to, you know, represent that you've got this this table of people that have the ear of the Edmontonians and, and maybe could represent some of their viewpoints. But it's interesting knowing how divisive this council has been that he, you know, went that direction because, you know, it's pretty plain to see that Cartmel, Hamilton, maybe to some extent Rice and Principe, 
quite separate from their colleagues on council. And this council on very few issues has actually spoken with one single voice. I wanted to talk a little bit about what they can expect going forward, because I think, and this is hot take alert, Daniel Smith for Edmonton is probably going to be better than Jason Kenney. If you look at the results of this election, uh, Danielle Smith opened the election campaign saying she could lose half of Calgary and still win the election. And indeed, she did lose half of Calgary and still win the election. But it's a very narrow majority. It's something where after four years, perhaps she might be nervous about keeping that. She's got the rural areas on lock. The NDP is at no risk of broadly sweeping rural Alberta. So all she has to do is purchase the cities. And I say purchase because one could argue that that was an electoral strategy. The difference between an NDP majority government and a UCP majority government is something like 13 to 1500 votes in Calgary. Daniel Smith offered $330 million for an arena deal. Do you think that could have swayed 1500 people? I certainly do. Now, of course, electoral math is what it will be. And Daniel Smith still got a full majority of popular votes. Yeah. So I'm not saying it bought her the support, but in terms of just winning the cities, there's precedent, I think, looking at the cabinet table of, well, if we give sufficient money to the cities, we're going to win enough votes to win the election. Uh, and I think Contrary to Jason Kenney's style of calling Nenshi Trudeau's mayor and attacking Edmonton City Council or passing legislation prohibiting city council from passing bylaws or, you know, the Tyler Shandro style of coming down from on high and demanding public safety plans to score points against Edmonton City Council. I think we're going to see Danielle Smith at least have the appearance of collaboration on municipal issues because, frankly, she has no upside from starting a fight with the cities. Yeah, I think there's some benefit to her for, for doing that. I would say it seems like politicians, provincial politicians, often dangle the cash for, <laughs> you know, urban municipal leaders. And that doesn't seem like anything that's new or different about what Daniel Smith might do compared to predecessors. I wonder about what the cash is dangled for, though, right? So in, in the case of Calgary with the arena, I think you're right. It might have had a little bit of an impact. That deal's pretty bad for Calgary. It's starting to make the Edmonton deal look palatable almost. <laughs> um, so, you know, having a big influx of provincial money is is probably a, a good thing from their point of view. But the arena is not the top of Calgary City Council's wish list. And that kind of infrastructure is not the top of Edmonton City's Council, Edmonton City Council's wish list either, right? So unless she's willing to put some money into things like affordable housing, supportive housing, you know, into the, the MSI funding and the replacement for that and all of the things that the municipal leaders actually say they need in order to continue to maintain the cities and grow them as population grows. I don't know that, that she would be seen as very collaborative, right? I mean, I guess it's hard for a, civ a civic leader to say no when there's money on the table. And we've built many a project just because there was money on the table, including the funicular, which is never operational, as I read your tweets this week, Troy. Uh, so it's, I understand the realities of, a, it's, you know, council's probably not going to turn away money, but she could, if she wanted to, Daniel Smith, you know, really be on side with the cities by funding the things that they say they want and be seen as a partner. Of course, I think back to Jason Kenney's tenure, where Councillor Tim Cartmel, who we acknowledged had pretty broad support, got up at a podium with the UCP banner on it and announced funding for Twilliger Drive that was coming from the province, circumventing the city's wish list, circumventing the city's priority list. And I'll say it was a pretty popular decision, not maybe with us on the podcast. We have a full episode about Twilliger Drive, but 
I don't think it politically hurt Tim Cartmel, and I don't think it politically hurt the UCP. I think you're right that um, there's going to be some money being dangled. And I think you're also right that I don't expect suddenly the homelessness and houselessness crisis and the opioid crisis and the drug poisoning crisis, I don't expect those to be the problems that are funded and the problems that are drafted solutions. Interestingly, though, I do think climate change is potentially a solution here simply because while Daniel Smith may want to give money for oil companies to leave their wells stranded and may want to ramp up our oil sands infrastructure and all that sort of things, solar is absolutely exploding throughout the province of Alberta. And I can absolutely see infrastructure and capital funding being doled out to Edmonton and our council directing it to implement another solar rebate or something else like that. I think there are possibilities for climate action at the city level, while the province itself naturally regresses as it burns. I mean, I hope you're right. Uh, the province is ahead of, ahead of schedule in terms of phasing out coal power. Solar and wind are the two big ones in the south. And of course, hydrogen and carbon capture are the two big ones in the north. And I expect we'll see lots of further announcements about those four you know, energy sectors or approaches or whatever you want to call them um, over the next four years. But I suspect most of the funding announcements from the province will be to attract these large companies to you know, fund these big projects, you know, like the $1.6 billion air products uh, facility here in the heartland, or, you know, the, the gigantic wind and solar farms that are getting built across Southern Alberta. I would be surprised, though I'm hopeful, but I would be surprised if there's a whole bunch of provincial funding all of a sudden for, you know, solar, solar retrofits and things like that within the, within the cities. I do want to talk about some of the big wins that the NDP had this election because there were some pretty significant changes. Of course, Rhiannon Hoyle, who lost in Ward E.P. Kokonipiotzi by a handful of votes in the last municipal election, did take her seat and is now the first black woman to be elected MLA in Alberta, which is pretty exciting news, especially for people in that ward. They're going to see good representation in her. I, w I would have loved to have seen her on council. I'm very happy to see her as a member of the legislature. Of course, there's also a broad uh, level of diversity, and including indigenous representation in Brooks Arcand Paul. And of note, Jody Callahoo Stonehouse, who we've talked about, the Edmonton Police Commissioner, or should I say, former Edmonton Police Commissioner. Once again, we have received no updates, no press release, no communication, but she has resigned her role on the Edmonton Police Commission, we can only assume, because she is no longer listed as a commissioner nor a staff member of the Edmonton Police Commission on their website. This is how they communicated, making a change to the website without actually telling anyone they've made a change. For sure. But it does answer the question of, should you sit as an MLA and a police commissioner at the same time? And I think we all collectively agree, no, no. one should not. Right. Two other new MLAs uh, for the NDP, Sharif Haji, the former executive director of the Africa Center, one in Edmonton Decor, and Peggy Wright, who's currently an assistant principal, one in Edmonton Beverly, or was an assistant principal, one in Edmonton Beverly Clareview. And of course, in Sherwood Park, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Kyle Kazowski defeated incumbent UCP MLA Jordan Walker there to flip that writing. Well, as this episode comes out on Friday, we're expecting that Daniel Smith will name her new cabinet, although she said, you know, there won't really be any business over the summer. She's looking forward to going to rodeos and barbecues and talking to people. She said people <laughs> want to be with their families during the summer. She's also walked back her statements about this 
you know, council of the defeated ideas. It doesn't seem like that's going to fly. But we are expecting to hear who the new cabinet ministers are. As, as we've said a couple of times, there won't be anybody from Edmonton, but there will be some folks potentially and probably from the donut. So these are the ridings around Edmonton. In particular, we've got returning cabinet ministers, Nate Glubish from Strathcona Showed Park and Dave Nally from Morinville St. Albert and also second term MLA and former municipal councillor councillor Cyril Turton from Spruce Grove Stony Plain. And when asked about this, Daniel Smith essentially said, those are a few names you'll probably hear a lot more about. So very likely they'll all be in cabinet, probably as close as they're going to get to having an Edmonton representative in the cabinet. Of course, if Daniel Smith's past cabinets are anything to go off of, her last cabinet was 27 ministers, which... I don't know if you're very good at math, Mac, but that means that if she kept her same cabinet size, more than half of all sitting UCP MLAs would be cabinet ministers, which is an absurdly high quantity in my view. But this is something that we could see. Perhaps we will see some donut representation on cabinet, but will it matter if that many people are part of cabinet? Well, your math checks out, Troy, and uh, I'm not sure that she'll have as big a cabinet this time as she did with the previous one. There was 20 ministers prior to that cabinet with five associate ministers. So I would hope they will see a slightly smaller, tighter uh, cabinet this time, but remains to be seen. Well, it'll certainly be interesting. I often get to talk to journalists from elsewhere in Canada, and they always comment on how interesting Alberta politics it tends to be. And I always say interesting is one word for it, Troy. (sighs) Of course, my interest in provincial politics has waned. Uh, We've gotten it out of the way, Mac. We've talked about it. We've done our time. Done and dusted. We are ready to get back to the municipal politics of it all. And there is some news. Council, surprisingly, didn't do much this week. They were in private almost the whole week. And you wrote about that at the start of the week. Yeah, every week I go and uh, obviously write about what's coming up on the agendas so that you can you know, just read that, dear reader and listener, and know what's coming up. And this week, I looked at all the agendas, and there wasn't much. So we're about six weeks now from the summer break for council. It's a bit surprising to have such a quiet week. They were talking about some, you know, youth council membership and committee recommendations. They had the city manager and city auditor performance evaluation committee. Those things all tend to be private, of course. And then they did have this private intergovernmental update this week, which I presume is about the election. I would imagine. I don't know for sure. Yeah, that's kind of what happened this week. We know there's a bunch of things that are on the schedule to come uh, looking ahead that we expect we'll get to talk about in the weeks ahead. But you're right, this week, a little bit quiet. Of course, there were a few things that uh, happened in and around the city, uh, not the least of which is a bit of an about face by the Chinatown BIA on the new Boyle Street development. Right. So we've talked about this before, Boyle Street Community Services and their planned King Thunderbird Center, which is at 100th Street and 107A Avenue. There's been a lot of pushback on this project. It's gone to the subdivision and appeal board. And Boyle Street has agreed to some conditions to help make sure that it's not a drop-in center shelter, but a place where people can access treatment, advice, facilities, etc. The, As you say, the Chinatown and Area Business Association has changed its position and says it's now willing to accept the project but of course it's still being appealed by other folks and so you know in the in the next week here or so we expect that the sdab will make a, another ruling the second on the second appeal of their permit of course we will be watching that closely but boyle street seems to have indicated that if the sdab overturns a ruling they might just change the plan and resubmit they seem to be going at this for the long haul 
Uh, so hopefully the haul is not too long because as we both know, those services are pretty desperately needed. But while the SDAB is ruling on that appeal, City Council decided to ignore the appeals of some climate-focused individuals, as Andre Corbald would call them, the quote-unquote climate people, in regards to trees in Horlack Park. If you'll recall, when the city planned the Horlack Park Rehabilitation Project, which would upgrade infrastructure, drainage services at Horlack Park, and would close the park for several years, one of the outcomes of this was a significant measured in the hundreds number of trees put at risk and the city decided this week that they're not going to change their plans in light of this information and will keep moving forward yeah this was last month we heard about about 700 trees i think it was including 112 that may be cut down so 700 trees at risk of of damage and this new report says that administration followed all the appropriate processes and isn't going to change anything but acknowledged that better communication is needed and greater transparency in terms of the process and in terms of recognizing how much Edmontonians care about the River Valley and about the trees in it are things that they need to commit to for future work. So uh, Councillor Ann Stevenson was happy about that and, and said that she's heard this commitment and will you know try to hold them to it. But they're not changing the plan this time. Interestingly, though, Adam Lachlan, who's the, the Deputy City Manager for Integrated Infrastructure Services, said that the their new trees that will be planted will be about five times the number disturbed or removed, and they'll be replaced with trees of equivalent value, uh, which is interesting, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm always dubious when the city values trees, uh, because, you know, sometimes trees can cost $100,000, sometimes trees can cost $7. Yeah. It is very tenuous, and, you know, I have a nice mature elm in front of my house, uh, if Dutch elm disease were to come and obliterate the entire front of my street and destroy my tree tunnel in my mature neighborhood, there's no amount of money that would fill the hole in my heart. Some things are priceless. Yeah, and three young trees valued at the same amount as that mature elm tree is not quite the same. I mean, as you say, it's just not all about money. Not everything is about money, but the city recreation centers are making more money as attendance has now spiked up to 96% of the attendance of 2019. So we're talking pre-pandemic recovery alert for Edmonton rec centers. Uh, this is pretty exciting for the city who um, had seen a pretty steep drop of rec center usage during the pandemic, namely because they told people not to go to them. And they closed access and yeah, were required to close access for a while. Yeah. But of course, in the year of our Lord 2023, it is now fully recovered. Edmonton was the first city in Canada to see transit recovery, recover to pre-pandemic levels uh, first. And now we're not the first for rec centers, but we're up there. Yeah, it's exciting to see. There's been more than 3 million visits since January 2023. So, you know, big increase over uh, the last few years. On the one hand, I have to say it's a little depressing, I suppose, right? That it's taken so long to get to 96% of 2019 levels. And it's not just rec centers, but across the board and the before times and the after times, you know, we're still measuring things by 2019 and we're still not quite there. But on the whole, this is going in the right direction. And it's a, a positive thing for uh, not just Edmontonians who can access these recreational facilities and their, you know, community hubs, as well as 
you know, places to promote health and well-being and everything. Uh, it's also good for the city and for revenue. And that's a good thing for all of us in terms of uh, the efficiency of the, of, the, of the city and the operational budget. But there's something else I wanted to ask you about, Troy, related to this rec center's announcement. So the city put out this news release and we've just told you everything it says. But what I can't describe for you is the photo of the mayor and some councillors doing yoga that they chose to do to accompany this announcement. So photo ops are not an unusual thing, especially when we're building infrastructure. There's always the political leaders there, but, you know, they're usually shaking hands or smiling or whatever. And in this case, they thought it was important to get, what is there, like six or seven of them, including the mayor, to do yoga just to promote this. Crazy? Smart? What do you think? Here's the thing, Mac. I saw people posting on Twitter, generally the, you know, bots that you ignore saying, why are they doing yoga? Why aren't they fixing potholes? And I'll say the same thing to you that I would say to the bots, Should would I engage with them? Sure. And that's, let the people do yoga, Mac. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's the thing, okay? If you look at our Edmonton City Council, and you look at what it takes to get elected to Edmonton City Council, and you look at the lifestyle required to be an Edmonton City Councilor, what you get is selection bias for being a dork, right? <laughs> this is just how it, you have to be to be an Edmonton City Councilor. So you're never going to look super impressive or super cool or on a Lululemon ad when you're doing yoga. But you know what, Mac? I think it's fun and I like it. Could they have picked a better photo? Could they have picked one where it didn't have the sort of like track fluorescent lighting? Sure, sure. All of those things. But you know what? I like it when city council embraces who they are and just does a thing. You're right. I'm good with that. I just wish we'd see a similar photo of them all on bikes when they announced the $100 million bike plan. No? Too much to ask for? Indeed. Of course, it is bike month, uh, I will say. Uh, the month of June is bike month, and we are seeing certain city councillors get engaged in that regard. I know councillors Jan, Salvador, and Tang are organizing some group rides, so hopefully we will see at least some photos there. But Mac, at the end of the day, it's Tim Cartmel on a bike. That's what we <laughs> both want to see. Um, That's what I want to see. Absolutely. He wasn't in the yoga photo, but I'd take Tim on a bike. Well, we didn't see them on bikes, but we did see some counselors with a photo op in front of trains or indeed a train station as the stadium LRT station, which let's be honest, Mac, you and I have seen this has been done for the better part of a year now. Yeah. But according to the city and according to the press release, it is now open and complete and the work is done and hooray, the station is open. This was work that began in 2020, so they've you know taken out the old station that was there where you had to go down and back up again. It's now ground level. It's much more accessible. They've got you know heated shelters, public washrooms, which I haven't checked to see if they're open, but they built them. Uh, they might be locked, but they built them. They've got this really interesting open design overhead. This like uh, this different canopy that I think looks really striking. There's some public art and benches and, and all of that. And so on the whole, like it's a really attractive looking station. It's a big improvement over what was there before. It's hard for me to get super excited about these things, though, Troy. Like I don't want to take away how much better it is than the previous station. Like replacing what we had from 1978 is a big improvement, but it still feels really overbuilt. Like you have to walk quite a distance to get, say, from the train platform to the bus stop, if you're going to connect off to transit, or to get to, you know, the coffee shop in the development that has sprung up kind of close to there, but not right there. You know, everything just feels bigger and wider and 
you know, more disconnected from, from where you want, actually want to go than it needs to be. And this is pretty common across our infrastructure, I feel like, in, in Edmonton. So as striking as it looks and as a big of an improvement it is, I wish it had gone a little bit further and things were a little bit tighter. Maybe some of that will come when development continues around the stadium LRT station. We see some more residential and other things built around there. Maybe it'll feel a little more dense, but at the moment, it does feel like a really gigantic space. Yeah, and of course, I bike through that area quite frequently, and the station is quite improved for biking through. The sidewalks are quite wide, but I can't help but have the same feeling, not only because the station's footprint is so large, but also, you know, to the north and to the east, there's just giant fields, fields that don't look like they're ready to be developed, fields that I'm not sure you could quite develop. And it's just adding more space between your transit access and where you want to go, which is antithetical to transit-oriented development. I mean, to be fair, I suppose it's next to a giant stadium, right? And so you don't want it to be right next door, potentially. And I do think it's quite attractive. I mean, you've biked through there, as you say, all the time. Does It, it must be a more pleasant ride than it used to be. And i got to give a shout out to the landscapers. Like, typically, we don't notice the landscaping because it just, you know, fills in the empty space. But... I've been biking through it during spring and the cherry trees, the blossoms of the flowers, all these native plants, they really do work together and it is quite a gorgeous space. The bus loop and the parking lot leave something to be desired. But when you're focusing that, yeah, that is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it has cemented in my brain as like, this is what this station should look like. Uh, so that is probably a good thing. I had to use the old station with a stroller a handful of times and it was far from a pleasant experience. Uh, compared to the, the the new one, the current one. Of course, on my bike rides, uh, I bike through my neighborhood and I always see two schools, uh, Joseph Moreau of Ecole Centre-Nord and Escuela Mill Creek, the Edmonton Public School, which both were recently rebuilt and both, interestingly, have a vast quantity of solar panels. I've always thought it was fascinating biking by and seeing huge solar arrays on the roofs of these new buildings. I've reached out and have been told that both of those buildings are net zero or as close to net zero as is achievable in that build envelope. So I was heartened to see the announcement from Edmonton Public Schools that this is a trend and now 7.5% of the division's entire energy requirements are provided by solar. Yeah, Global News did a story about this, which caught my eye and, and said, you know, that they've been installing solar panels on school roofs uh, for the past five years. And of course, there's some learning opportunities for students, but really it's about providing that energy. And there's 24 schools now that have solar panels. And that 7.5% you mentioned saves them an estimated $650,000 each year. So that's certainly not insignificant. Uh, the most recent one, and I think the reason they did this story, was the J. Percy Page High School now has a 797 panel installation. So uh, this is a really good thing. I'm really excited to, to see this. And that's a lot of panels. I've brought you along on my solar escapades. Mac, I'm getting five, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's a lot of panels. Yeah. But that will conclude our panel on this podcast today. Uh, of course, if you want to hear more from Taproot, you can hear 
from Taproot every single day. It's The Pulse. It's an email newsletter straight to your inbox every morning. It comes out at 6 a.m. That's when it hits my inbox, right, Mac? That's right, 6 a.m. for you early risers. It gets you started with your day. You can have your cup of coffee, maybe even a pastry, and read about the news. It tells you about City Hall, tech, food, the arts, business, and more. And of course, there's little bits of whimsy, like a moment of history that, you know, can give you a little chuckle or smile as you're drinking your coffee. You can check it out at tapperyedabinton.ca. And of course, Mac, it feels like we just got back, but we're taking a page out of Danielle Smith's book. And summer is for being at rodeos, for driving blue trucks, for going to Pinoca. I'm not sure <laughs> if we're doing either of those things, but long story short, we're not going to be here next week. But we will be back before council goes on break to give you all your city council news that you've come to know and love. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.